God Almighty, the great I am. Praise God. Thank you, Ben. Let's give, let's give God a hand. Praise God. Yeah. How do we raise kids that grow up loving Jesus? Man, I am not an expert on this. I'm not. I don't know that anybody is truly an expert, but we have all of our experiences. I mean, is there anything in life that is as frightening as being a parent? Man, I'm not sure that there is. Uh, Martin Mull, a comedian, said some years ago, being a parent, raising children is like having somebody install a bowling alley in your brain. Yeah, you may know what that's like. Uh, I, I read that one teacher sent home notes with her students that said, if you as parents refuse to believe or do not believe everything your kids say happen at school, I'll, I'll not believe everything they tell us happens at your house. And that's a, that's a good idea. There was a, one man by the name of Doug Larson who said, few things are more satisfying than seeing your children have teenagers of their own. Yeah. When I knew that I was going to be dealing with this topic, I was going through some files, and I found a, an article that had been written years ago, and I think it's, it's kind of timeless. Let me share it with you. The author writes, I had, I had just pulled the last shirt from the dryer and put it on a hanger when she came down the steps into the poorly lit and musty laundry room of our apartment complex in southwest Atlanta. There was a look in her eyes that betrayed her heart. What will he say? The question written plainly on her face. And after taking a deep breath, she said, I have something to tell you. And indeed, she had something wonderful, frightening, exciting. Having just returned from the doctor's office, my wife announced that in less than eight months, we would become first-time parents. The idea of what was happening was truly exciting, but the reality of what accompanied that not-too-distant event was equally frightening. There would be, there would be a new responsibility for which I, I knew very little and was inadequately prepared. It wasn't like buying a new washing machine or a new car. If you didn't meet the payments, the purchase might be repossessed. Or, or if it was broken down in the warranty period, it could be fixed or replaced. This was a human life. We couldn't just take it back if we were unsatisfied or if it was giving us trouble. Even more frightening was knowing the type of world into which my child was going to be born. The, the city of Atlanta had tallied over 200 homicides since January. The government was producing TV commercials informing children that if they were ready for sexual, sexual experimentation, they should take the proper precautions and use birth control. Neither morals nor consequences were discussed or mentioned. There is so much hate, deceit, lust, sin in the world. How could a how could a young person survive morally intact? What right did I have to bring a child into that kind of environment? The author went on to say, obviously, it all boils down to family. And the success of the family depends upon the value, the importance, and the commitment that we give to Christ. Proverbs 22.6 says to train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn, he will not depart from that. The Apostle Paul instructed the church in Ephesus by saying, fathers do not frustrate. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training, the instruction, the nurture, the learning of the Lord. It seems to me that the best way to be successful parents is to be Christian parents. And if I do my best to raise my children under the influence and the teachings of Jesus Christ, then parenthood is going to be something to be enjoyed instead of something to be feared. I wrote that article in October 1979. The following June, our first daughter, Joy, was born in St. Louis, Missouri. And I thank God every day as I look back that he intervened and made uh, 
made corrections where I had made so many mistakes. This is the last sermon in the series of Can I Ask That? And this is an amalgamation, I guess, of, of questions resulting from that, that uh, uh, question you have been asked. How do I raise children in a godless culture? How do I raise children that love Jesus? How do I, how do I bring into the lives of my kids this understanding of the value of faith? How do I do that? And it's a great question. I mean, after all, we want our kids, we want our children, uh, we want so many good things for our kids. I mean, we, we want our children to be successful. We, we want them to have it better than we did, as one parent said. Uh, we want them to be happy. But really, out of all the things in life that come to our children, is happiness the main goal? Is that what we want? Is that, is that the, the primary goal for our children, is for them to be happy? If you look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins a Sermon on the Mount with what we call the Beatitudes. And there are a series of blessings, and the word blessing simply means happy. And Jesus said, you're going to be happy when you're poor in spirit. And you'll be happy when you mourn. And happy are those who are humble and those who seek righteousness. And happy are the merciful and happy are those who are pure in heart. And happy are those who work for peace. And happy are those who are persecuted for doing the right thing. Jesus didn't list anywhere in here that the goal in your life is to be happy and giddy and things will be great all the time. He said, no, as a matter of fact, things can be hard in life. But you can find a blessing in that and you can be at peace in that as well. I don't necessarily want my, I want my kids to be happy, but that's not my most important goal for them. I want them to be holy. I want them to reflect the character of God. I want them to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior so they can sing songs like we just sang and sing it with full confidence and power. Holy, holy is God. Great Almighty is our Lord, and he is my Lord and Savior. That's, that's what I want our, our children to be able to say. These are scary days for the church. One person wrote that we are simply one generation away from the collapse of Christianity. I don't know if that's true, but there are things around us that make me question. Why am I concerned about the future of the church? Studies tell us that between 40 and 50% of our high school students that will graduate, between 40 and 50% will walk away from faith. They'll walk away from the Father. Now, some of those will return, but 50%? Studies also tell us that... Uh, 18, those who are 18 to 29-year-olds today represent only 10% of the attendance in our churches. I, I pray that, that, that that's not true here, that it's more than that, and I, I kind of believe that it is. But still, that's, that's problematic. We're reading a book in the staff uh, that Nathan and Andrea brought to us called Growing Young. The idea is how we grow the church young, how we get more people who are young involved in the church. But at the same time, there's another book, the second book by the same author. It's called Growing With. And a quote from the book Growing With says, We cannot assume that young people will return to church at age 30 after walking away from their faith. This generation is different and less likely to return when they become parents. And even those that do return will have spent many years away from the Father, away from the church, away from Christ, and they will have developed a worldview that is a secular worldview and not a Christian worldview, and it will be really hard to walk back into faith if that has had such a dominating influence on their life. Why is there a decline? Why do young people stop coming to worship, stop coming to church? Three top reasons were given. 35% said it's because the church is not relevant to them. 
It just doesn't seem to make any sense in this time. And another 30% said, I can find God elsewhere. Outside of organized, quote-unquote, organized religion, I can find God someplace else. And 17% said, well, I prefer to be self-taught. In other words, I'm going to take a little bit of Christianity and, and maybe some Hinduism and maybe a little bit of Confucianism and, and, and maybe something else that I'm going to synchristically wrap all up this together, and that's going to be my belief. That's going to be my faith. Again, from the book Growing With, if our young people keep their convictions about Jesus separate from their lived experiences, they run the risk of embracing a faith that is unable to keep pace with their lives. We want our youth to keep developing their connection with God and to live holistically. Now, not all news is bad. There's good things going on. There are millennials that stay in church. And why do they do this? Because, number one, they have, there, there are relational outcomes with them being here. In other words, they have developed relationships with older adult members of the church. And that's a good thing. That's really good. Number two, they have a strong understanding of the Christian life. They know how to contribute to the society around them. And, and they understand their purpose in life as a believer in this world. Number three, they've developed life skills that have helped them to see their gifts, their passions uh, as a part of God's calling. How the Bible relates to their field, their career. They've been able to understand that and to hold on to that. Number four is a, a, a mission that the church has. Whether it be service, whether it be uh, missions, uh, a mission trip. They have found a cause in the church that motivates them to continue to come. And number five is they walk with Jesus. They found a vital relationship with Jesus Christ within the church, and it's a place where students can live out and can apply the truths that they find in church to what they're doing every day. Those last two, the mission of the church and walking with Jesus, are extremely important. I believe this is something of what Joshua had in mind, although Christ wouldn't come on the scene you know, for several years, that even as he's writing to the Israelites and helping them to understand what their role is in life, that he wants them to have a strong relationship with God the Father. And so he tells the Israelites, here as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16, he said, Be careful. Don't let your heart be deceived so that you turn away from the Lord and serve and worship other gods. If you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the sky and hold back the rain, and the ground will fail to produce its harvest. Then you will quickly die in that good land the Lord is giving you. So commit yourselves, commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine. Tie them on your hands, wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates so that as long as the sky remains above the earth, you and your children may flourish in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. Now at the beginning of chapter 11, Deuteronomy, Joshua points out, said, your children that are with you now did not come out of the Exodus. They didn't see that. They didn't see the pillar of fire. They didn't see the pillar of smoke. They didn't see the Red Sea parted and, and all of you walk across. They didn't see all of those things. They weren't, they weren't privy to that. That's not a part of their history. That's not a part of their background. Therefore, you have the job of making sure that your children remember and they know. They know what God did in the wilderness. They know what God did in Egypt. They know how God saved you and brought you from slavery. You've got to teach them. You've got to remind them. And so we teach our children about these things so that they don't fall into the danger of worshiping idols and, and also how God honors obedience. Principles, change, or principles don't change, but teaching, teaching methods do. Parenting today is markedly different than it was 
even a few, few decades ago. I mean, it's, it's a lot different than it was when I, when I was a kid and I was a parent raising children. I mean, technology puts uh, all these things, puts the entire world at the fingertips of our kids. With one push of a button, they can see the best the world has to offer or the worst the world can offer. At, at, at one push of a button, they can see the beauty of God's creation as well as the deviancy of Satan himself. And our, physical, uh, our, our children seem to be maturing at a faster rate physically, not necessarily emotionally, not necessarily mentally, but they certainly are growing up faster, it seems. And, and our culture continues in this downward spiral where we call bad things good and we celebrate the basis in human behavior. Times change, but principles do not. Mom and dad and single parents and grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncles, you've got your work cut out for you. We really do. It's, it's not an easy task. Unfortunately, we've been led to believe that a few hours in Sunday school and a few hours in worship and maybe going to CIY move or believe is all that our children need to have a foundational uh, backing, to have that strong Christian faith put into them by, by just those few hours. The truth is, these are opportunities that are actually secondary to the time and exposure that your kids need to be receiving at home. Not only should they be doing these things, but they also need to be hearing from you, mom and dad, aunt and uncle, grandma and grandpa, who Jesus is and how God works in your life. This is why Joshua said in verse 8, Commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. The NIV translates this verse by saying, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Fix. Put them there. Adhere completely so they're not dislodged. They're not moved. They're not taken away. Think of Gorilla Glue. We use that to put on something and hold it together. It won't come apart. That's the idea. Why do we do this? Because we're easily distracted. We easily forget. We easily get our minds turned to something else. Several years ago when I was in Anna, I was a part of the Union County Counseling Board and because I was a part of the board, they wanted all the board members to take, uh, to take an exercise called voices. They, they wanted us to understand what it is like for a person that hears voices, that deals with paranoia and schizophrenia. So the exercise was that you would wear a set of headphones and you had a little tape recorder with you and you walked around and that you went to five different stations and each station was different. One, you had to take notes. One, you had to figure out something with your hand. Uh, another one, you had to listen to someone told you something and you did dictation. And it all started out with just a few noises that you would hear. I mean, nothing really terrible. It wasn't terribly distracting, but there was just noise in the background. And you could, you could do the first event and even the second event. But by the time you got to the third event, you began to hear voices. Quiet at first, but they grew louder. And as they became louder and more perceptible, you heard these words, You're worthless. You're stupid. You're ugly. You can't do anything. You have, no, you have no purpose. You have no hope. You have no future. What are you doing here? Who do you think you are? By the time I got to the fifth station, I could hardly manage. I could hardly move. I could hardly even think clearly enough to know what I was doing. And it's not that the voices were loud. It's that they were constant. Our young people today, I don't mean literally as though they're dealing with those inner voices. But our, our kids today are hearing the voices from the culture around us telling them that they're the most important thing that ever walked the face of the earth. 
And when they get to be an adult, they find out that that's a, that's a lie, that they're not. Our kids need to be reminded daily of God's love, God's grace, God's presence, His will and desire for their lives. Those are the voices, those are the messages, those are the words our kids need to hear. This is why uh, Joshua said, tie them as reminders. Man, the Israelites were coming into a new land, a new place God had provided so much. He said, and I don't want you to forget that, and I want you to come up with ways to remember that God has provided all this for you. So he said, take these little scrolls that you have in front of you and roll them up and put them in a leather box called a phylactery. And you wear it on your wrist, which is close to your bloodline here. You put it on your forehead, which means it's close to your brain. In your homes, take those same scrolls and put them in a reed tube and mount them to the side of the doorposts of your homes or write in big letters atop, uh, on the top uh, ledges of your door. Write scripture, write truths, write biblical verses up there. We do that in our homes today. You go into our homes and you'll find appliques on windows and you'll find signs in our houses that, that have a psalm or a proverb or, or something there. Uh, Tyson's got one in his house that says, stay out of the refrigerator. Not sure how scriptural that is, but I think it's probably working for him. Why is it important to remember who God is and what he's done? Because in verse 21 of our chapter, it said, So that as long as the sky remains above the earth, you and your children may flourish. Flourishing doesn't have anything to do with money or status or power or those kind of things. Flourishing has everything to do with our faith. We need to flourish in our faith, flourish in our hope, flourish in our, our commitment to a strong family, flourish in our lasting relationships, to flourish with the appreciation of what really matters in life. And that is what God is wanting us to do, to flourish in those areas, those things that, that really make a difference. But we're also to be reminded about what happens if we choose not to trust God, if we choose to walk away from him. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 26, it's written, Look, today I'm giving you the choice between a blessing and a curse. You will be blessed if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. What will your children choose to do? Who will they, who will they obey? Again, times change, but uh, the principles do not. The truth doesn't change. So this morning, I want you to realize the existence of two incontrovertible truths, truths that never change, truths that are immutable. Number one is this. There is the importance of parental involvement. I know you hear this all the time. Parents, you got to be involved in your kids' lives. But it's true. It, it makes a difference when you're involved in the life of your children. If your kids like to read, it may be because you read to them as children when they were growing up. I remember so much uh, joy sitting on uh, Deb's lap, and Deb would have a little kids book and read that to her and then she would read to her popular mechanics and popular science and those things that really mattered no she didn't do that if your child's excited about school maybe it's because you're excited about school for them parental involvement makes a critical difference in the developing life of our children again the book growing with says while both mothers and fathers are important in faith development mom and dad both 46 percent of young adult children who feel not close to their fathers, maintain the same faith as their parents. But when young adult believers feel close to their fathers, that rate jumps to 71%. Dads, you make a difference. You make a difference. Are you involved in the lives of your children? We think that we are. 
As a matter of fact, a, a survey asked a bunch of fathers how much time they thought they spent in the lives of their children, their, their one-year-olds, and dads said on the average, oh, between 15 and 20 minutes a day. Well, they, they uh, did a test. They took these one-year-olds and put a microphone on them, and they taped them for one day uh, or, or all day long for several days. At the end of that time, they found the average time that a child actually spent with his father was limited to 2.7 encounters a day, lasting anywhere from 10 to 15 seconds. That's hardly any time at all. I hope that's not true here. You see, children gain perceptions about life when they watch how we live our life, when they watch how we react to the things that happen to us, how we react to the store, how that we act, react with our boss and, and with other people. They watch what we do. We know that. They're watching what we do. One Sunday school teacher asked her class, do you know where Jesus lives? And one little kid said, Jesus lives in our bathroom. And the teacher asked, how in the world? What do you, what do you think you're, why do you think Jesus lives in your bathroom? And the child said, because every morning dad gets up and goes to the door and said, good Lord, are you still in there? Ah. That'll come to you about 3 o'clock this afternoon. We can influence our children, and we can influence them with negative behavior. It happens. Abraham lived in the land of Gerar. It was ruled by King Abimelech. Abraham was afraid that King Abimelech would see his lovely wife Sarah and take her for his own. And so he said, well, that's not my wife, that's my sister. So Abimelech took her, hadn't done anything yet. God spoke to Abimelech in a vision and said, hey, that is Abraham's wife. And so Abimelech returned Sarah to Abraham. Some years later, Abraham's son Isaac did the exact same thing with his wife in the same land to the same king, like father, like son. But there are positive things that can happen that we reap positive results. And that positive influence is expressed vocally by what we say and, and by what we do. Chuck Colson, who had founded a Christian fellowship ministry, a prison fellowship ministry, said that in his years of being in that ministry, he found very few Orthodox Jews were in prison. Why? He said because Jewish fathers knew how to express vocally and physically to their sons how valuable they were. First of all, he said he they tell them that they're proud of them. Number two, he tells them that they love them. And number three, they give them a hug. Vocal and physical. And in those words and in those movements, the son finds worth and acceptance and value. They find the ability to make good, wholesome, and more choices in their life. Joshua encourages that same kind of involvement when he said, Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road. When you're going to bed and when you're getting up, you know, do this over and over again. Uh, tie them to your heads and wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We learn, we learn by repetition, don't we? It's been said that if you repeat something every day for 20 days, it becomes a habit. You, you'll, you'll do it without thinking about it. We need to instill these biblical truths, these principles in the minds of our children by talking about God's involvement in our lives. And we need to do this every day. Again, the book Growing With says, faith in families has become a lost language, a segmented category, the fancy room in the house that we visit but, but don't live in. Parents can bring back faith language into everyday life by finding small ways to speak it again. Like any language, it may seem awkward at first, but consistency will bring fluency. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunts and uncles, get involved in the lives of your children in faith. 
But there is another truth that we see here. No child can be prepared for life who has not been taught the love of Jesus Christ. See if you can figure out where maybe this quote comes from. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and training. Any idea where that came from? That was a commitment statement that the trustees of Harvard College had to make in 1636. Now just because Harvard and the Ivy League schools have lost their vision in this doesn't mean that that statement is any less true. It is true. Unfortunately, academia today does more to undermine the faith influences of our children than it does to, to undergird that. Teaching children about the love of Jesus Christ is not only the job of mom and dad and aunt and uncle and grandma and grandpa, it's the job of the church. All the churches involved in doing this. An African proverb says, it takes a village to raise a child. Now, that proverb doesn't mean that the village is involved in providing food and clothing and, 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 and all the things that a child needs growing up, but it does mean that, that village is responsible for acting and showing that child what good manners are all about, what good behavior is all about, what good decisions are all about. It's no less true of the church today. We share in the responsibility as members of this congregation to our children to show them what God looks like in the way that we act, in the way that we talk, in the way that we present ourselves. I don't mean by, by clothing, but simply in the way that we present ourselves to others without being critical, but, but, but by, by being loving and forgiving and, and all of those things. We know what they are. It takes a church to do this. I want you to hear this morning how GFCC is working to help your children come up under the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and how parents can, and the church can be involved in this. Uh, Andrea Andrus is going to come and talk about Faith Path uh, as the director of that ministry, and I want you to hear a little bit about that. Andrea? Well, several years ago, I was serving as a children's pastor in southern New Hampshire, and in that season of ministry... I had a woman named Paula on my children's team. Now, Paula was in her mid-40s, and she was a new Christian. She had just come to faith in Christ, and she was so excited about that, that she was propelled to action. She was one of my super volunteers. A super volunteer is someone who shows up every single week, and they are ready to serve whenever and wherever needed. So I spent a lot of time with Paula at this time in my life. At this time, Paula had three children, uh, who were in middle school and high school, and they were struggling in a lot of ways. As I walked through that season with Paula, there was one raw moment where she opened up, and she said, Andrea, I love Jesus, but I have no idea how to help my kids love Jesus, and the church isn't helping me. She felt a lot of anger about that in that moment. Now, as a pastor, I could have been very easily offended by that statement, you know, our church was doing really great things and partnering with parents and giving them resources to use at home that connected to what we were doing on Sunday, a lot like we're doing here at GFCC right now. And we had a vibrant youth ministry that was faith-filled and engaging and there for her teens. But instead of feeling offended, I just felt a lot of sorrow. I felt her sorrow. And I felt really empathetic for her as a parent and with her. So at the same time in my life, my children were uh, in their younger elementary years. So I began wondering what it really looked like to help my kids in their unique generation, Gen Z, 
how to develop a faith in Jesus that lasted. Now, I had been raised in a home uh, that was Christian, and I had been discipled in my home and in my church, but I was still asking some of the same questions that Paula was. How do I continue to help my kids come to love Jesus and develop a faith that lasts past my home? This has truly been the heartbeat of my parenting journey. At the same time, as a children's pastor, I also understood the vast difference between the time that the church has to invest in the life of each child versus the time that parents and grandparents have to invest. That difference is about, there's a lot of research out on that right now, that talks about the average child, if they attend church pretty regularly, has about 40, the church has about 40 hours to influence that child versus 3,000 each year versus 3,000 hours that the family has in their life. So knowing all of this and feeling this struggle and feeling like I needed to meet a need, I scheduled a meeting with our lead pastor there and I told him Paula's story, and I told him about these statistics, and I told him what I was feeling in my own parenting journey. And thankfully, he saw the need for this, for this to be looked into, and he encouraged me to start dreaming about it and, and finding out how the church could help meet the need. So I began researching and reading many different authors and experts in this area, and I began trying some of their suggested discipleship methods at home with my children, Aiden and Braylon. Uh, now, Aiden, always being the jokester, as we go through this, many, many different uh, studies together, he eventually started calling me the queen of awkward conversations, which I wear very proudly. As my children began to develop into different seasons of their life, I began to understand various milestones that they were hitting and ages that were transition points in their development. And I began seeing the need to help them grow not only physically, socially, and emotionally from one season to another, but even more so spiritually. And over a several-year period, God led me and my team to develop a ministry called Faith Paths. Um, and this is a ministry that is now available to parents and grandparents here at GFCC. Faith Paths is a ministry that includes a series of intentional events, classes, and small group studies that are aimed at teaching parents and grandparents how to disciple your children and grandchildren at specific developmental stages. These Faith Paths are held at various times throughout the ministry year, and it's giving families multiple opportunities to take advantage of each faith path um, as their children grow and enter into new phases of their development. This is a map of what the faith path looks like. I realize it's small. There are numbers on this map, and this map, those numbers represent the ages of our children in our youngest generation here at FCC. So the different things that are offered here on this map are for parents. They're not for children, they're for the parents and grandparents here. And so the ones that are listed are baby dedication, which we're very familiar with here, creating a rhythm and positive discipline. Positive discipline is a faith path that's going to be offered here coming up March 19th. Um, that's for parents of toddlers and preschoolers. Then we have one called spiritual parenting that is um, ongoing, and right now that is for elementary age into middle school. Then as the children progress into uh, pre-adolescence, we have one called preparing for adolescence. It's for older elementary and middle school children. And then our rites of passage and launch are for our high schoolers. And at the very end of this ministry is something called a, a blessing banquet. This is for our graduating seniors. This, this ministry exists as a strong way for FCC to partner with and equip parents and grandparents in helping your kids understand who God is, how to surrender their life to Jesus, and how to navigate the differences between the secular culture they live in and God's truth for their lives. 
Now, over the past few years, as I've been working and offering these faith paths, the single biggest obstacle that I've found is getting parents to engage, to take time out of your busy schedules, uh, to intentionally invest in learning how to disciple your children and grandchildren. So as a parent today, I completely understand the busy schedule. I'm living there with you. I have high school, a high schooler and a middle schooler. Those demands that parents are working on, they're facing work, sports, activities, extended family obligations, and on and on and on. So I work really hard at intentionally offering faith paths in ways that are as short as possible. In times when families are already coming to the church building and removing the obstacle of childcare for families. There are brochures at our parent hub that look like this. If you get a chance to go back, this is in our kids' wing. You can just grab one. So much more information about each one of these faith paths is there so you can understand more. But if you are a parent and grandparent of this youngest generation at FCC, I invite you to engage in this ministry, the faith path ministry, as each is offered in your young one's specific phase of development throughout this next year. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. This is a great ministry, and I hope that you are availing yourself of it as parents and kids. The greatest need that we have is to learn or is to teach our children how to love Jesus and, and, and all, the, all the positive benefits there are from that, apart from the fact that it's uh, uh, loving the one that can save our souls. So I'm, I'm glad we're doing this here at the church. If we're able to teach our children how to love Christ, it means they're not going to be dragged down by this culture into the, to the pits of despair of sin, and, and we don't have to worry so much about all of that. And this is the reason why Sunday school is important, and worship is important, and youth groups, and faith path, that's important. These things are important, but that's not, that's not sufficient by itself. They need, they need more, and this is where your work as a parent in your home comes in. I mean, after all, what if I told you that I could take your child as a tennis professional... <laughs> 1977. Uh, yeah, that's me in 1977. If I could take your kids and make them look, well, they don't want to look like that. Um, but I could take your kids out onto a tennis court, and in one hour a week, in one year, I could teach them to be a tennis pro. Do you think I could do that? No. And if you think that one hour a week in church is enough to make them a strong believer and to really... Uh, uh, Make them, make them confident in their faith, that's just not enough. They need what can happen here at church. They need what can happen in your faith path, but they also need what can happen in our houses as well. This is a, this is a, combined, uh, a combined effort. This is why the writer to the Hebrews said, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his, draw, of his return is drawing near. The author here is not talking about church attendance particularly, but he's talking about how believers unite in church how they do this in worship, how they encourage each other, how they pray for one another, how they forgive one another, how they hold each other accountable, how they grow in faith, how they witness, and how they show uh, their, their confidence and strength in Jesus Christ. And that's done in the unique assembly of believers. It, it's the only, this is the only place like that, that that exists when the church comes together in this way. There's a, a picture that was given to me not long ago. It shows a dad and his kids standing in worship here. Now, from the back, you may not know who that is. From the front, that's Paul Kao, one of her new elders. And the picture was given to me to say, you know, I, I saw this, and I was just so moved by seeing dad and kids together in worship. Man, that's a, that's a, that is a beautiful picture. And I pray that inspires us and it encourages us to understand just how important the spiritual role is that we have as parents in the lives of our children. 
The foundation of faith is critical to the needs of her kids. I, I wanted it for my children. I want it for my grandchildren. The other day I was, I was reading a book on, on parenting just to get some more notes, and, and something came across that, that I wish I had paid attention to earlier in my life as a parent. But it said, sit down and write a letter to your children or your grandchildren and bless them in this letter. So you call it a, a blessing letter, I guess, for lack of a better term. So this week I sat down and wrote a letter to Sophia and to Titus and Esther, my three grandkids. They'll get those in the mail this week. And basically in the letter I just simply said, I'm proud of you. I love you as my granddaughter. I love you as my grandsons. I, I see that God has in store for you great things. There's great potential in your life. God can take you who you are and do, do wonderful things in the kingdom. I'm so, I'm so glad that you are my granddaughter. I'm, I'm so blessed that you're my grandson. And I ask God to bless you, to pour out his love and protection and safety and grace and, and all those things on your life. I hope that's something they'll read and maybe reread over and over again. Years ago, I had written a letter to my dad I didn't know that it really made any difference. I thought maybe he would read it and throw it away. I found out later, even after he had passed away, that dad would take this letter that I had written to him and he would show it to his friends and said, look, look at the letter my son sent me. And I was, uh, I was so moved by that. My children have taught me a lot of lessons. Deanne has taught me a lesson about seeking when I was preaching at the Community Christian Church down in New Braunfels, Texas, every Saturday morning after we got done with the Bible study, there were a group of guys that got together for Bible study, and, and then we would clean the church building. We didn't have a, a, a team there to do that yet. It was a new building. So we would stay and, and uh, just clean out the bathrooms and, and sweep the carpets. And so I was in the auditorium sweeping the carpet. I don't do windows. But I was sweeping the carpet. And every Saturday morning, Deanne and Deb would pull into the drive, and they would come in, and we would go have breakfast at IHOP. And some of the other guys would go with us. One Sunday morning, or one Saturday morning, uh, here the car pulls in the driveway, and Deanne gets out, and she, she kind of comes in through the doorway. She rockets past the other guys into the auditorium where I was sweeping. She comes up and grabs a hold of me, gives me a kiss and a hug, and says, Come on, Dad, let's go have breakfast. A little bit later, one of the elders of the church, Tom Jackson, said, Wouldn't it be great if we all sought the Father like Deanne seeks for her father? Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if our children watch us seek for the Father? And isn't it wonderful when our children can see us in our seeking, finding, and knowing, and loving, and praying to and being blessed by the Father. And when we can show them by the way that we live our life just how much God directs what we do with our words and our thoughts and reactions, with how well by our life we tell the story of Jesus as Lord and Savior in our life. And when we do that, and we do that well, that provides an example for our daughters and our sons and our grandchildren. Because if it's important to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, it must be important to me as well. This morning I pray that, that you are in the process of always seeking after God. 
I also pray that as you know him as your Lord and Savior, that he is near and dear to you and you are exampling that to your children. If God is not, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior this morning, there is an opportunity for you to respond as we sing this song to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. I want him as my Lord and Savior. And if you've not been immersed into him, that that may happen. As an immersed believer, maybe you want to partner with the ministries that happen here at the church to proclaim his death until he comes. Maybe as a parent, you just need somebody to pray with you for a moment. Tyson and I will be up here, and we would, we would love to do that. Would you stand, please? Heavenly Father. Father, as I looked around the room this morning, and see on the, on the faces of those here the joy of parenting, but Father, also the the fears of the present world. And Father, I pray that you would give courage, strength and courage to every mom and dad, every family, every single parent, every, every grandma and grandpa, every aunt and uncle who are investing in the lives of their kids. And Father, give them, give them wisdom beyond themselves to be able to know what to do to bring up their kids in the nurture, the admonition, the instruction, the strength of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, this is a wicked world, one that's broken. It will be healed one day by you. But in the meantime, Father, give us wisdom and strength to be able to live in it well and pass along to our kids that same faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.